Just a couple of reminders before we get back into John chapter 6. The, we will have the church fellowship right afterwards. We're going to kind of flip the room around real quick and pull in some tables. So uh, if you need to go get your kids and bring them back, that'd be great during that time. But it will just take us a few minutes. The line will be over here. We'll tell you more about it that in a few minutes. Also, I wanted to give you, um, just kind of show you a resource that's on our resource cart, which won't be out today because of the churchwide fellowship, but will be out next week. And this is a 40-day journey to the cross for Lent. And maybe if you're like me, that you didn't um, make a big deal about Lent. Maybe you didn't even know about Lent growing up in the churches you grew up in. I didn't. You know, I, I didn't know what in the world it was until a few years ago. But I really discovered that this 40 days leading up to Easter can be a really special time of just focus on Jesus to kind of give up something in our lives that maybe uh, brings us distractions from Christ or something that, that we could give up to make us more focused on Christ. And so this is a little devotion to go along with that, and it would start on March the 2nd and lead you up to Easter. And so I hope that maybe you'll get a, a, one of these or um, something similar to it to kind of help you as you prepare for Easter. I'm going to give this one away uh, this morning. And um, has anybody in here been married less than a year? Valentine's Day tomorrow. Anybody been married less than a year? Oh, Freeland, uh, Haley, come on up here. Freeland, come on and grab this. How are you doing, man? You're welcome. And so we're back in John chapter 6, and we'll be looking at about eight verses there. Let's pray, and we'll get into this text. God, we thank you so much for this church family that we come together each week to worship you and to celebrate you and remind ourselves and remind each other that it's not about us. And God, I pray that our faith will grow stronger in you, God, and that your faith in us will grow stronger. And God, I pray that our lives will become more and more about Jesus. And God, I pray that you will help us to be quick to repent and turn from those things that distract us and get in our way. There's maybe those sins that have been following us around for a long time, God, that we will get into community and get into fellowship with one another where we can see victory and realize the gospel in our life that is powerful and it really makes a difference. And God, I thank you for your patience and your love with us, God, and I pray that you will allow us today as we look into your word that we'll draw closer to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So the context of John 6, because we've been in this chapter quite a while, the context right off the beginning, Jesus fed the 5,000, a very, very familiar story there at the beginning, and then he begins to um, speak to the crowd, and the crowd actually want to take him, and it says, by force, take him and make him the king of Israel. They literally want to set him up, run out the Romans. That's what they wanted to do. Well, what did Jesus do? When that began to happen, he got his disciples out of there because he knew, like us, they're very susceptible to the fame, the fortune that would come with that, and they would be the right-hand men of Jesus. And so he sent them away, and he goes up into an isolated place, and he prays. And then when he comes back down from praying, he walks on the water and ends up on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and there the crowd finds him again, and he begins to preach to them and trying to give them proper perspective on this whole picture, that he's not there to be a king that rules by a revolt or rebellion. And so he talks to them, and he he says that I'm the bread of life in verse 35, because they were asking, okay, Jesus, if you're really setting yourself up as somebody important here... All right, let me remind you, Jesus, what Moses did. Moses called down manna from heaven for 40 years. 
And Jesus said, well, point of order, first, Moses didn't do that, God did it. And secondly, I came from heaven, all right? I came down. And so they're having a hard time with this, and Jesus gives them this analogy, this metaphor of being the bread of life, and he says, whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Well, they're confused. They're confused by this, but more importantly, they don't believe in Jesus. They don't trust Jesus. And so Jesus keeps pushing this metaphor about being the bread. And pretty soon they figure out that he's not talking about an actual loaf of bread. And that's why they respond in verse 52. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So they say, What in the world is Jesus talking about here? His flesh to eat? But Jesus doesn't stop here. Jesus keeps pushing this even further. And in verse 53, he says this, pick up our text today. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. That's pretty stark. That's pretty scandalous for sure. Uh, It's probably a hort to the crowd to hear Jesus say that. And we know, many of us know that Jewish people, how they felt about blood, and they were prohibited from drinking blood of any type. Eating a, a rare steak would be obviously out of bounds for them, still is. And so Jesus is giving this metaphor, and, and people are astounded and shocked by what he's saying. Now, teaching using metaphors during the time of Christ was a very normal thing to do. In fact, it was kind of like the main way that rabbis would teach people during that time period. And so they did have a point of reference, and they also had a point of reference to the fact that in the Old Testament, it refers to eating and drinking as references to spiritual realities. But what Jesus is doing here is like our topic we've talked about the last two weeks, Jesus is forcing them to wrestle with a deep, mysterious truth, and that truth is the union, the connection that they can have with him through faith. And it's another one of those deep mysteries, and Jesus understands completely. He he understands the human mind better better than any of us because he made the human mind. He understands it perfectly, and with this understanding, he would be able to give to the people the closest, closest frame of reference in the physical realm for what the spiritual principle is that he's giving. So he gives them the perfect analogy, the perfect metaphor for them to begin to wrestle with this spiritual truth of being the bread of life. And if they're going to have eternal life, if they're going to have life, they need to eat of him and drink of him. And the mystery is the union, again, that they can have with Jesus, the union with Christ. If you are a believer in Christ, Christ defines you. All right, you can think of a lot of other things maybe that define you, but nothing as a believer, a true believer, nothing should define you any more than Jesus Christ. Your story, your life becomes enfolded in his story at salvation. Do you hear that? At salvation, your story becomes his story, and his story becomes your story. And it's very, very sad in a culture of easy believism where we can just tack Jesus onto our life as a genie in the bottle or something to add some value to my and pleasure to my life when I want him. 
without understanding the significance of what Jesus is saying here, the fact that if you want me, if you want to be united with me, if you want to have life with me, then you're walking away, so to speak, from your life, and your life now becomes Jesus' life, and his life becomes your life. 17th century French theologian Blaise Pascal said it well. He said, not only do we not only do we only know God through Jesus Christ, but we only know ourselves through Jesus Christ. Let that sink in for a minute. Just leave that on the screen for a second. Look at that. Think about that. Is that true? That you only know yourself through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is your identity. And so eating and drinking of Jesus, eating his flesh, drinking his blood, is about having this union with him that defines who you are. And we all, many of us in this room, wear lots of different hats, right? You think about all the hats you wear at work, the hats you wear in your family, the hats where you wear in the community. And some of these things begin to be part of our identity, right? Your job you're so invested in your job, you love your job, you give so much of your life to your job, so your job becomes, begins to be part of your identity. Sometimes that can be a terrible thing, sometimes it can be okay, but nothing should be our identity anywhere close to the fact that we are in Christ and Christ is in us. And that should define who we are. So that's salvation, that's the radical event that happens at salvation is Christ in us, and us in Christ. And Jesus says, eat my flesh, drink my blood. That's radical. It's crazy, and I'm giving you the best metaphor possible for you to wrestle with this, with this mystery called the union with Christ. Do you get that? So we wrestle with that. We're wrestling with it today. We wrestled with it then. The Apostle Paul wrestled with it. Let me, let me show you some verses from Paul's letters. This is pretty amazing and pretty cool. Galatians 2.20. I quote this a lot. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Colossians 3.1. If then you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Romans 6, 4. We are buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness or live in newness of life. One more, Ephesians 2, 6. And God raised us up with him, with Jesus, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So look at these phrases on the screen here, these phrases. Let me tell you something about this. Paul wrestled with this mystery, which was Christ in us and in uh, us in Christ, to the point where he invented, okay, he invented new words to describe the reality of life with Christ. These are the new words that he created as he penned his letters, crucified with, raised with, buried with, seated with, he took a, 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 each or a single Greek word that did not exist before Paul coined them. That's pretty amazing. And it shows you what Jesus is saying, how radical it is. Something so unique has happened in Christ that there was no words 
to explain it. Something so radical happened in Christ that there's no words for it. Paul had to come up with new words. So here's a question that we have to consider today. If something like that happened in your life, don't you think things would begin to change? Don't you think your identity would be more Jesus and less you every single day? And every year, as you look back on your life, you're like, I'm sure not perfect. I sure make a lot of mistakes and sin a lot, but my life is becoming more and more like Christ. Less of me and more of him. And Paul said, I've got to create a whole new vocabulary to describe what happened to me in Christ and what happens to you in Christ. So you see, when Jesus said, verse 54, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks of my blood has eternal life, this radical metaphor was necessary to comprehend a radical new birth. And that's what he got back in John chapter 3 when he was talking to Nicodemus. You must be born again. That was another analogy, which is radical and is kind of, for us, it doesn't hit us like this one because we've heard born again a lot. And it's a lot more socially acceptable than saying, eat Jesus' flesh and drink his blood. But the point is the same. It's a metaphor that we must struggle with, with the mystery of the fact that this radical new birth has taken place in our lives, in our hearts. And so it's no surprise that the Jews didn't grasp this metaphor because they, first of all, didn't want to believe it. They didn't want to hear it. It was outside of their worldview. They wouldn't accept it. What happens when we hear things that are so outside of our worldview that we just can't entertain it? We just, we just shut down. We just push back. We're like, I can't even process that. That was going on for sure with them, but it's also important to remember, as Jesus has said again and again in this passage, he's saying that they don't understand because God hasn't granted them the, the faith to understand. And Jesus will state that again in this passage. God had not initiated the faith within them. So they could not grasp the meaning of these words. All they could do was to be repelled by it. And then Jesus clearly here is also referring to his death on the cross, his flesh and blood, which prophetically he's saying, I'm going to give for you. I'm going to give for life so you can have this union with me, so you can, my death will make this possible to have this relationship with my Father. And so verse 54, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So, so whoever feeds on me, and drinks my blood, those are the people who have eternal life. This is union with Christ. This is who we are in Christ. It's not, it's not Christ with me. It's not Christ and me. It's not Christ blessing my dreams. It's Christ in me. And I in Christ and that's our hope of glory. What's Jesus says this, and Paul says it in Colossians 1.27. He says, To them God has chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this, what is the next word? Mystery. Which is, here's the mystery, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And so Jesus' promise there in verse 54, I will raise him up on the last day. Paul's saying the same thing. The hope that we have for glory is based upon this union we have with Jesus Christ. 
And so if there's any hope for anyone, it's all about Jesus. And it's all about what he did, not what we do for him. And so if we are thinking that it's Jesus and me, and that combines to bring about my salvation, we miss the point of the gospel completely. We miss what Jesus is offering, what he initiates in our heart. And everyone here who's a believer in Jesus and put your faith, has truly put your faith in Jesus, something radical has happened in you to the point where Jesus says, it's like eating my flesh and drinking my blood. And you will not have eternal life if you don't have that union with me and that connection with me. And what puzzles me sometimes about the promise of Jesus and eternal life is our culture and the Christian culture is really good at accepting that Jesus can give us eternal life after our life is over. Right? That's pretty much why most people, when they're younger, come to Christ is so you don't have to go to hell, you go to heaven. And at and, and that level, we understand and believe that Jesus can give us eternal life. But where we stumble is in our faith to think that Jesus can give us life now and that he can provide for us everything that we need to live this life in the here and now in a way that represents him and that his character and the fruit of our lives begin to to depict him and show him more and more every day. See, you see, a lot of people, they, they don't think Jesus can save them in the here and now. He can only save them in the future. And that's puzzling because to me, right, what's, what's, what's more realistic and easier for us to believe, truly believe, that Jesus saves me now or Jesus saves me after I die, right? I mean, they're both mysterious and they're both difficult, but Jesus said it, and it seems like if we can believe him for our eternal life, we can believe him for our life today. Do you? Do you only believe him for eternal life? I got my ticket. I'm good to go. I said that prayer. I'm good to go. But this life, I don't want a savior in this life. I'm my own savior in this life. I want to do things my way. And Jesus says, it doesn't work that way. You see, this is a union with me. Eat my flesh and drink my blood. That's believing and taking in with faith all that Jesus is for us on the cross. All of who he is to the point where our identity changes. And more and more, we become like Jesus. Verse 55, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Verse 56, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood, here it is, abides in me and I in him. You drink my blood, you eat my flesh, I abide in you, you abide in me. And this is about the clearest statement Jesus makes explaining this metaphor. Abide in me. You abide in me and I in you. Union with Christ. Now we're going to see a lot more of that theme in John chapter 15 about abiding. But abiding in Christ is not a special level that Christians experience. It's the position of all true believers. Let me say that again. Abiding in Christ is not a special level that you get to. It's your position in Christ. I'm in Christ, and Christ is in me. Verse 57, As the living Father sent me, Jesus says, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me 
Whoever abides with me, whoever takes me in, he will also live because of me. And that's that whole idea that eternal life starts now. Eternal life doesn't just start when you die. Eternal life starts now. It begins when we place our faith in Jesus. And then he says, This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. We talked a lot about in this chapter about the imagery of Moses. The picture, it starts out, this chapter starts out with the Passover. Now let's remember who Moses was. To Moses, to them, to the Jewish people, was the most important Jewish prophet. He was really the hero of the country. I mean, he was, I mean, if they had dollar bills, Moses' picture would have been on it, okay? This is how big a deal Moses was. He personally met with God. He wrote the first five books of the Old Testament. He delivered Israel from Egypt. And Jesus says, I'm greater. I'm greater. See, he, he's busting through their worldview. He's busting through their religion. And he's saying, I have come. I'm God. I am has arrived on this planet. And Moses, as incredible he was, doesn't compare to me. And all these events in John chapter 6 just keep pointing to Jesus' superiority over Moses. Him feeding the 5,000. Moses fed with manna. Jesus feeds. The grumbling of the people we looked at and the grumbling of the Israelites as they wandered in the wilderness. Jesus being the, his blood and his flesh and the, and the Passover lamb. And he's the ultimate Passover lamb. And so he's saying, I'm greater than your hero, Moses. I give eternal life. I don't just give temporary life. I don't just sustain you for 40 years. I give you life. And that's why if you back up, rewind back to chapter 1, when we heard this in the beginning of this book, it says, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. You see, Moses and the law brought death because it shows us our sin, but it offered no permanent solution to that sin. Jesus comes not just to show us our sin, but to show us grace and truth and show us his righteousness and show us who he is and how that we can live forever and have eternal life when we place our faith and trust in him. So he's saying these things to just bust through their, which is rightly, you understand this, they have a hard time, but Jesus has done everything that he needs to do. And as Jesus said, you only come to me if the Father draws. So Jesus isn't concerned because he knows that this is in his Father's hands. It's in his Father's will. And I think as we consider this idea of Moses and the law and Jesus comparing himself to Moses and saying, I, I bring grace and truth, I think it's a good reminder for you and for me how easy we can slip back into living under the law. And maybe you think, well, I don't live under the law. I don't keep Passover. I don't, you know, keep Sabbath, so to speak. I don't do all these things that the Old Testament law says to do. But we default back to law by thinking that through our efforts, through our resolve and firm commitment, telling God we're going to do better this time, 
that it's so much law. It's, it's just more law. It's more me effort, my efforts. And yes, the Christian life is a lot of effort, okay? It is a lot of effort, but you can't get it backwards. The effort flows out of the union with Christ. And through our relationship with Him and through Him in us and us in Him and resting in the truth of the gospel, through that comes our effort. And, and, and just like these other things are mysterious, it's mysterious how, where that line is sometimes to know is this my effort or is it Jesus working through me effort. But I, I, I will tell you this, I don't think Jesus wants to trick you or deceive you. I think we go to Him, we talk to Him. And we tell him, we're just honest, and say, I, I, I want to do this in your strength, Jesus, not my own strength. I want to become more like you. And my default is just to add more law into my life and more restrictions into my life and more sacrifice into my life. And while some of those things may be part of the journey for sure, probably will be part of the journey, it starts with who we are in Christ. And so the application today, our head, Christ in you. Not, not you and Christ, not y'all together. It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. The only hope you have in the next life and in this life is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And so for our heart, let's open our heart to God's Word and believe who He says that we are in Christ You've been given everything that you need, 2 Peter chapter 1 says, to live this life that he's called you to live. He's given you everything that you need. So it comes down to faith. Do you believe who Christ said that you are? Do you, do you believe that? Do you trust what he's declared over you? I've used this illustration before, but it's a perfect illustration, and new people, you haven't heard it, so um, it'll stick with you maybe. When Michelle and I first got married, uh, we went to a, this pretty nice restaurant in Chattanooga because I got a $50 gift card for it. If at that time, $50 would buy you a nice meal. And we went and we ordered appetizer. We figured out we order appetizers, we order entrees, we get some dessert. Man, we'd be in good shape. We come under our $50. Well, when we got the bill, we realized that the gift card, for some reason, only covered the entrees, it would not cover the appetizers and dessert. And we had just been married a few months. We didn't have any credit cards. And we scurried and looked through our wallet and through Michelle's purse trying to find whatever cash we could find. And we found just enough to cover, literally, to cover the bill. And that's it. We had no money for tip whatsoever, right? We, we had no tip money. So we were like, let's put this down on the table and let's get out of here as quick as we can, right? We were so embarrassed by that. Well, I was recounting this story to my dad later on on the phone, and he's like, son, you have my Visa gold card. It's like, oh, I think I did tuck that back underneath some stuff in my wallet. He's like, why didn't you use that? Well, I was like, I forgot I had it, first of all, and then I didn't know if it was okay if I could use it if I didn't do I had it. He's like, you're my son. Everything that I have is yours. Didn't say it quite that biblically, but he got, that was the idea, right? <laughs> he said, it's for you to use. Here I was living 
like a poor person trying to pull together money, running out of a restaurant out of embarrassment when I was sitting on so much more that could have covered maybe everybody in that restaurant's food that night. Yet I ran out of there scared, embarrassed, upset. That's what we're doing when it comes to our union with Christ. We focus on ourselves, and we know we don't have enough resources. Even on our best day, our best effort, we fall short. And God's saying, look who I declare you to be through the gospel. I'm working on you. I'm working. I'm doing something. I'm in you, and that's your hope of glory. We need to honestly, truly, just confess the fact that we've made so little of this idea of the union with Christ, this, this reality of the union with Christ. And, I, and, I, and honestly, I think for some, many Christians probably, they don't understand it and they don't want to understand it because they don't know Jesus and Jesus doesn't know them. And I, I, I hate to sound that condescending or legalistic or whatever, but I think it's true in our culture that so many people want Jesus and me the hope of glory, right? Jesus, come here. Let's make this fun, and you know, let's, let's go on this ride together, and I'll, and I'll let you know when I need you. But Jesus is by no means the flesh that you want to eat and the blood that you want to drink. You don't want that to be your identity if you're younger, because it would be a killjoy for your fun. If you're older, you like your functional idols, just like I do. So much of the time. I like being lazy. I like comfort. I like pleasure. Christ in us. The hope of glory. Union with Christ. So please, please get alone with God. Talk to Him. Admit to Him the reality of where you're at and the struggles that you're going through. And let His Word just flow over you and preach the gospel to yourself. Jesus, you're my righteousness. Jesus, you're my only hope. Jesus, you're everything. Help me to be what you called me to be. Let's pray. Father God, I pray you'll allow us to truly set our minds upon you and remember that we've died and our life is hidden with Christ in God. I pray, God, that you will allow the truth just to stir over us, over our hearts, May we realize what really happened at the day that we put our faith and trust in you, and the change that you begin to work. And I thank you that we can trust your grace when you said that you began a good work in us and you're going to complete it. And God, I pray you'll teach us how to align our efforts, our energies, our discipline under our union with you, not over our union with you, God. Give us the wisdom practically, how that looks in our life, 
And God, may the Spirit convict us and show us when we fall back into law and we run from grace and truth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.